Welcome, Welcome to, to Radical, Radical Feminist Perspectives. Perspectives. Today, today we are going. Sorry, today we're going to talk about the 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 essay, the theoretical effects of anger of the the anger of the oppressed and other essays by Colette Guy Almain. It's going to be discussed mostly by Bronwyn Winter, with possibly a couple of questions from me, Joe Brew. Um, this is a women-only webinar, and if you're a man, please watch it later on YouTube. So thank you so much, Bronwyn, for coming. And um, I'm going to add the spotlights so we get you. So uh, thanks very much for coming, and over to you. Yeah, hello, everyone. Um... Oh, Zoom's throwing signs at me. Yeah, hello. Um, I've um, worked on Guillaume's stuff for oh, many, many decades, and I did know her somewhat. Um, we sort of had a meeting of minds, which was quite nice. Um, and she's part of a whole community of materialist feminists and radical lesbians, many of whom have now died. Um, Daniel Charret, um, uh, Nicole Goudmetieu, and others. So it's, um, I was also at a conference commemorating Guillaume's work in 2019. So she's sort of, um, she's somebody for whom I had a lot of um, affection, uh, even though she was a very private person. So we talked on an intellectual plane rather than a personal plane. All right. So perhaps we could go back to sharing the slides, if you wouldn't mind, Joe. And moving on to the intro, there she is. It's actually quite hard to find photographs of her online. This comes from the Wikipedia entry on her. And um, I could do a whole seminar on the differences between materialist feminism and radical feminism, but <laughs> that's probably for another time because I think there are some significant differences, even though there are some overlaps. So that's something that we can maybe talk about um, at another time. But definitely um, she was very much part of the group that critiqued heterosexuality as a system of as oppression. And she didn't mention gender, she mentioned sex. So we're not going to talk about gender this evening. So first slide, um, and this is a little bit of a preface to what I'm going to say, if we could move on, Joe. Thank you. In um, 1990, Guillaume published um, uh, this short piece, I think it was in a sociological journal, if I remember correctly, um, talking about um, the assassination of 14 female engineering students in Montréal. And this is something that's commemorated by feminists there every year. And it was a very shocking event. And Guillaume, in her essay, she said, well, at least it's clear. He identified that he hated women and he hated feminists. So we, you know, he made his motivation very clear. That's um, not always made so explicit. But um, the framing of this guy was that he was um, loopy, off the deep end, not normal, had psychological problems and so on and so forth. But Guillaume talks about the rule is that men have the right to women. And there are certain normal circumstances, which mean you don't overstep the mark with that rule. So you don't go around killing women. Although, you know, at one time that was perfectly okay, but not so much now. So there's, her argument is that the assassin just sat at the extreme end of a continuum of male domination of women and male appropriation of women. So I thought I wanted to start off with that, that um, men who are violent, and she also makes the point that most men who are violent against women are in the family home. They're violent against their wives, their daughters, their ex-wives, and so on. So the Montreal shooting was unusual in many respects, but it was certainly part of the fact that you know men hate women and men want to control women and that's not an exception it's the norm moving on so we have some keywords today and these are the keywords are uh, we're going to look at and next slide please and first we're going to start off with the idea of majority and minority and uh guillaume attributes um this idea is, as, a, as a political term having emerged in the 1930s. Can we move on to the next slide, please? 
Thank you. Gilman's early work was actually on racism and on the theory of racism. So she, um, her doctoral thesis uh, was finished in, uh, was published in 1972, but it was finished in 1969. And, you know, she sort of started a bit late in the academic field. She just got into the CNRS, which is the, the National Research Institute in France. And there's an age cutoff for getting into the CNRS. So, um, but her, in her book on racist ideology and its genesis and its, its current language, and this, this was the work for which she was first known in France, her work on racism, but she's applied the same sorts of ideas to her work on male domination. But she makes the point very strongly, and I've, I've read an obituary where she is credited with pioneering this concept in France, that, uh, that she's talking about a minority as a political concept and not as a numerical concept. Now, Gobineau, who uh, was a 19th century philosopher who developed this idea of scientific racism, uh, looms large in her work on racism. And uh, he talks about the nature of the races. There are three races. There's the white race, of which, guess what? The Aryans are top. Uh, there's the black race and there's the yellow race. Now, the white race uh, you know, the intellectual race, the black race are the sort of essential emotional race and the and the, um, the the yellow race are sort of in between. They're not as good as the right race, but they're not as bad as the black race. But Gubino's very sort of self-contradictory and circular argument is that, well, in order for civilizations to develop, you end up having this racial mixing, but the racial mixing in itself will lead to the decadence of those same civilizations. So, you know, this is sort of the, these are the sort of scientific tropes that informed the development of the ideology of racism in the 19th century, not that it was not already around before that, but we really get this ideological justifications for colonialism, for um, keeping the working class away from the vote and so on and so forth. We get these ideological justifications emerging in the 19th century, and um, we're going to talk about that a bit more in a minute. But that's where she started off. Now, moving on. Now, one thing that she, it's a wonderful passage in this book um, on racist ideology, which, is, which has been um, reissued. It was out of print for a long time. It's a shame, you know, we must try to get it translated one day. But she talks about evaluation compensatrice, which is this sort of that you can put women on a pedestal that reminds me of a wonderful song by Anne Sylvestre, a feminist singer-songwriter who died very sadly last year, who wrote this wonderful song which is sort of a feminist oh it's a feminist theme song we all love it called a witch like the others in and and Sylvester talks a little bit about this too about how women get put on pedestals but put on pedestals to better dominate them yeah that's one of the lines in the song and uh Guillaume is writing pretty much the same thing here she's saying well you know we can give we even have high status we can say lovely things about you know what wonderful dancers black people are and how smart Jewish people are and what wonderful you know how wonderful women are naturally at being mothers and isn't that great um but these these are just tropes that get used in fact to appear to elevate them so as better to dominate them so those sorts of um Simone de Beauvoir wrote about that as well and uh, these, are, these are very crafty ways in which there's a certain favor accorded to the dominated in certain areas to make it look like they're really cared about and they're really on a pedestal, they're really looked up to or they're really cherished in society, but it's in fact a way of keeping them in their box. And you know, we all understand how that happens with women. All right. Off we go, next slide. So this idea of nature. Now, it's not, it's not a coincidence that this idea of nature emerged in the late 18th century during the revolutionary period in France. And you know, you had these sorts of revolutionary movements also in the States and elsewhere. But for the brothers, the the free and equal brothers of the new France to post-revolutionary France to justify keeping certain classes of people down. So we have this emergent bourgeoisie, this notion of human rights, the rights of man, of course, as it was then, it was only men and only men of a certain social class. 
um, and only white men, only men who weren't slaves. <clears throat> so to justify keeping certain classes of people outside this realm of equality and freedom and fraternity, we have this discourse of nature that gets developed. And quite a lot of French feminists have actually written about this. Um, uh, Geneviève uh, Fraisse has written a couple of books about it. But um, Guillaume makes the point that it's sort of, this is a mode of perception that then gets rationalized into a doctrine because it's a, it's a justification for saying, well, we're going to be all equal, but only some of us are going to be equal. So some of us are far more equal than others. Yeah. And there were movements at the time. Uh, we were just talking with Joma a moment ago about Olam de Gouge. I did a webinar about her a little while ago. And um, she was also part of the anti-slavery movement. There were other people in that movement. So there was a big movement against slavery, a slightly smaller movement for women's rights. But it wasn't as if there weren't any oppositional voices at that time. But the dominant discourse was that there is a nature there is something deficient in the slave, there is something deficient in women, and there is something deficient in what emerged in the 19th century as the post-industrial revolution working class. There's something deficient um, by nature in these people, by nature, or deficient or not the same as us. So they're different from this norm. And that so we can we can justify depriving these people, as Guillaume writes. To, to, to crush them, to crush them, to deprive them of resources, to deprive them of a voice. And she was writing all this stuff, late 60s, early 70s. And this is again from um, her work on racism. Next slide, please. So now she has a wonderful essay and you must read it either in French or in translations called Question of Difference. And it's just the most, you know, I think it's probably the first thing of Guillaume's I ever read and it completely blew me away. It's a fabulous essay and it's also very, you know, it's, it's quite funny in places. She takes issue with this whole thing of difference, which is, you know, so, so much a buzzword these days, because when you say you are different, you are different from something. She much prefers the, the, the term diversity because yes, human beings aren't all the same. We have internal diversity among humans, but we're still one species. We don't have a male species and a female species among humans. We don't have a white species and a black species who are different. We're the same species. And you know, and 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 just as race created racism, racism created the idea of race, we also have sexism that creates this idea of women's difference. So she really takes issue with this term difference as a bit of a trap. And, it, and, and, and she stresses the fact that this is a relational term, because what often gets disappeared, as we very well know, is that the oppressed are constructed as having a tendency to be oppressed. And the, the agency of the oppressor disappears. But difference, the construction of difference and the construction of women or the racialized within this difference is a relational thing. It's a relationship of power. Yeah. So the referent, the reference is men, white, and so on. And being, and then you differ from that. Next slide, please. And there's she was also writing at a time where you know you had this sort of in a different voice stuff going on as well, you know, the was it Carol Gilligan? Um, we had these sorts of, you know, women claiming their difference. You have Sikipu in France that were doing this as well and claiming, you know, our, our, our difference as women and we're different from men and blah, 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 blah. And yes, yes, we're a sexually dimorphic species. So there are some differences. But however, um, this idea of claiming, yeah, this, this desperation to be recognized because, you know, you're oppressed, you're marginalized, you're boxed into this difference. And so that difference then becomes something that you end up fighting for and claiming as a, as a value, that sort of um, compensatory over-evaluation. Uh, and she writes, and this is sort of quite complex, and you'll have to read it, but she writes in, the, in this essay, Question of Difference, that... It's a real trap because somewhere when women are claiming this right to difference or the racialized are claiming this right to difference, there is somewhere in there a conscience of class, a conscience of being an oppressed class. But 
At the same time, there's this sort of cognitive dissonance in there, and she doesn't use that term, but that's sort of what's going on. So you're claiming an oppression. You're claiming the effects of your oppression as something that is valorizing. So you're sort of in a no-win situation because you're boxed into this difference. And at the same time, you're claiming that same thing that you're boxed into um, as something that is going to give you value and give you a voice. And it's a real trap. And of course, very famous sentence um, in this essay, we're not so much different from men as we are different from what men claim that we are. And of course, with all the hoo-ha about trans ideology and so on, we, we have those, those sorts of claims about what women are um, in abundance. But, you know, they come from somewhere and they come from this male supremacist ideology that constructs woman in a certain way. And it's not about, you know, yeah, we're different, but different from what they say we are. But we are one human species. We are not different. So the the... the Oh, no, I think I've got another side about that. I'll come back to that. Anyway, great essay. I really recommend it. Next slide, please. So one of the big things that Guillaume worked on was in relation to this discourse of nature, which is the ideology and appropriation is the practice. Yeah. So the discourse of nature is the ideology that becomes an expression of the practice or its justification. And... Um, and she compares um, the domination of women by men to slavery and to serfdom, with which it has some elements in common in that it's not just your workforce that your, your labor force that you're selling or having appropriated is your whole being that is being appropriated. And there are no limits to that. So there's no measure of, you know, how much work for how much pay or any of those sorts of things. Your whole being is a possession. Your whole being is an object. Your whole being is to be disposed of and used as, the, as your possessor wishes. And in, in, in French, slavery is esclavage and serfdom is salvage. And Guillaume, in a nice little assonance, called, develops the term sexage as the, the enslavement of women. So, so the, the, the body is completely appropriated and the, the, the material, and, and, and she does mention this somewhere, I can't remember where though, but it's something that is mentioned by others in other writings. Familia, the family, was originally the household, yes? It was all the possessions of the head, the master of the house, including the livestock, the slaves, the servants, the wives, the concubines, and of course the children, yes? So it's it's really the familia is the compound. It is the whole compound that belongs to the head of the compound. So at that on that level, the familia, which came into um, English and French relatively late, um, that familia, the the whole notion of family as the belongings of its head um, is very very strong. And of course, appropriation. One of the ways that women do get appropriated, of course, is within marriage. She talks about um, belonging to one man or being for general common use, as in prostitution, for example. So, um, so that she sort of puts them, as a lot of materialist feminists and radical lesbians do, puts them pretty much on the same plane. You belong to one or you belong to everyone. Uh, so, but the, the belonging to everyone still becomes an extension of the belonging to one. And women who've written about sexual harassment at work and things have seen that continuum. All right, moving on. Just checking my time here. Uh, what are we up to? Oh, that's okay. All right, so there are different ways in which women are appropriated. So we've got four main things. Time, the products of the body, mainly producing and caring for children, and sexual obligation, and... And of course, you know, the great mantra in, um, in uh, France about um, rights and duties is that as a citizen, you have rights and you also have duties, yes, as a citizen towards other citizens to whom blah, 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 yeah. But of course, in the context of male domination, some have rights and others have duties. So, and some people's rights correspond to other people's duties. And of course, the physical charge of everybody, pretty much, all the men in the family and anybody who's um, immature, infirm or disabled or sick. 
So those are the four ways in which appropriation of women happens. Next, please. And these are the means by which it happens. Obviously, we've got the labor market where the, she talks a lot about inequalities between women and men in the labor market, but there's also, I just mentioned sexual harassment. Um, we know all the many, many, many ways in which the labor market is not at all a level playing field for men and women. It's not at all um, a place in which men and women are treated in the same way. Uh, we have this whole, and that's another sort of over, over evaluation, this compensating thing. We talk about soft skills now and emotional intelligence and all those warm, fuzzy things that women are supposed to do well. Yes, so we've got those sort of things going on in the workplace now as well. Spatial confinement, obviously, within the house. Um, that's been the traditional way of, of keeping women um, under, confining women within the house. And even now, that, can, that confinement, as we know, extends. So when we have, you know, you know, I remember very clearly back in the days of the Yorkshire Ripper, we're going back a few decades, but around the time that Guillaume herself was writing these words, um, women in the UK were being told to stay off the streets. And doesn't that happen still? Yes, women are told to stay off the street rather than um, men being told to stay off the street so women can be safe. So there's still that spatial confinement. So men's prerogative over women means that women have to be confined if there is an overuse or misuse of that prerogative happening. Show of force, no need for explanation. Sexual constraint, no need for explanation. And of course, the arsenal of law and customary rights. And there is one, um, she does talk at one stage, well, she talks at a couple of places about what women legally have the right to, but what actually happens. <laughs> because ideology and custom are such that the legal rights that women should have access to are not enacted. So there's the law, and we know that even when there are laws against things like marital rape, marital rape and so on, that the women are almost still put on trial in the courts. So the courts do not treat women even when there is a law that says that women are supposed to be getting support in the legal system, we know very well that they're not. And we and and just recently um, in Australia, in, in in Sydney where I live, a woman was killed by an ex who she had an apprehended violent violence order out against him. He had been in prison because of an allegation of violence, uh, uh, domestic violence against her. He was let out on bail and he went and killed her. This is how the law is not working for women. This happened like just a few days ago in Sydney. And those things are commonplace there every day. And we know that very, very well. So the arsenal of law, even when they appear to work in our favor, they don't necessarily work in our favor in the way they're applied. So those sorts of things happen. And customary rights, which we think of when we think of customary practices, where well, we think, oh, Oh, those countries where they practice FGM or those countries over there where the girl, where there's a son preference. And, well, you know, excuse me, in the West too. Yeah, so there's, um, and Guillaume makes it very, very clear that it's not over there. This is happening in the West. It is happening to Western women. It is happening to French women. So she's very, she's very clear on that, that we can't other these problems as saying, oh, is it these backward civil, which is, you know, another form of racialization, yeah? It's these backward civilizations over there that are doing these horrible things to women, but we don't. No, not so. All right, next. Now, I suppose that, you know, now Karl Marx wrote about alienation, yeah, of the working class, but this is, this is worse than alienation. This is actually being dispossessed of yourself. You're so deeply alienated that you no longer, you no longer are your, your own person. Yes, you are dispossessed completely. Yeah, there have been various metaphors used women as colonized territories and so on and so forth. I don't like that term so much just because colonization has a specific historical um, and political um, meaning, but um, I, I understand the sentiment. So, and also one of the biggest impacts of this discourse of nature and of the, the deep-seatedness of appropriation and the construction of women as being certain types of people and serving certain types of function is that it is so naturalized that we don't even see it. Uh, she does in one of her essays cite news articles where um, people talk about, oh, there was a, 
there was this worker and that worker, and then there was a woman. Or there were three hostages, one of whom was a woman. So every time a woman is marked as a woman. So you could talk about the men in the scenario by everything else they are, but the women, they're there as women. So, the, the, and this is so deeply internalized that it's not even noticed that there's something wrong. So, the status of women as tools for the use of other, it's so deeply rooted, so much in, 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 in people's mentality. And again, women, you know, women now being, women now being used as a costume. Yeah. So we have other sorts of things that are going on. Gilman did not write about trans ideology. It was a different time. I don't know what she would have said about it today. Um, that would be pure speculation and we would have to have the conversation. But, um, you know, there are certain aspects of her, excuse me, of her thought that are applicable. And like she said, there is no astonishment, much less any questioning and no unease whatsoever in the face of the fact that men, women materially maintaining working order for their possessor and other properties and dependencies of that possessor. This does not shock anyone. And that's the battle we're fighting. And we have been fighting for many decades, as you all know. Next slide, please. You might have heard of the term of reification. Marx uses it to talk about workers, the reification of workers as object. Um, women are reified. An object is always in its place. That's its nature. It's, you know, it, it does what an object is supposed to be used for. We had that with slaves. We're treated as things, um, most famously and most explicitly in, in documents such as the Good Noir in Louisiana. Uh, so we have slaves are property, yes? Uh, women are property, so that it's not... a as explicitly encoded these days in the West, it used to be, these days it's not as explicitly encoded in law and custom as it used to be, but that reification still exists. We are an object to be done with as, as it is seen fit. And I referred a moment ago to talking about, oh, well, there was so-and-so and such and such, and there was a woman. We're always reminded that we are fundamentally, our role is women. It's not descriptive, it's a social definition. We are women, we are marked. We are a marked category. We're not the general human species. We are a marked category within. So we, and you see that sort of stuff talking about our black man as well. You know, if they say a man, you know he's white. If they talk about his race, you know, you know it's, it's usually when he's not white, you use the, those markers. So there's a, these marked categories. And as soon as you see those marks, when you know we're talking about a class that is dominated because we don't talk about, you know, there were three hostages, two of whom were men. And I love this. I love the, <laughs> this, this um, woman is sex and a sexual organ does not possess itself. Men do have a sexual organ. They are not sex. They possess a sexual organ, which they use as a weapon whenever they damn well feel like it. And I think that's also, we, women are reduced to wombs. And we see that with surrogacy, uh, among other things. Yeah, Women are reduced to wombs, to vaginas, to sexual organs, to body parts. We are sex. We are not fully human. Next. So all of this stuff that we've been talking about more recently, this was being written 40 or 50 years ago. Yeah. So this was being written in France 40 or 50 years ago, and there are other women writing in other places. Um, what I suppose is, is quite specific about materialist feminism and, and is, is there was a much more Marxian influence in what they were writing. And also in the case of Gilman, there was a very strong analysis of racism and race and racialization of people. And she's very, very good on that. And I do recommend you read her work on race and racism as well, because there weren't many people talking about the sorts of things she was talking about at that time and still aren't. So theory, what is all this, what does all this do to theory? So she starts her essay on the theoretical effects of the anger of the oppressed with this sentence, is theory a stronghold or is it a private preserve? A stronghold, you can also translate it as fortress, mais place forte is more of a stronghold. And chasse a private preserve is a private, chasse the literal meaning is a private hunting ground. Yeah? So private 
the 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 connotations of the term are much more eloquent in French than they are in English. And of course, we know that the minorities hate theory. We know that we recognize it as a sacred verbiage of those who dominate us. So we have, and, and you know, those of us who've worked in the university sector, we have battled with this all our lives, that theory, good theory, is the theory that those in power decide is good theory. And we're always doing twice, three times, four times as much reading and writing and working in terms of looking at theory because we have to investigate what is canonical before we can even get to our stuff. Because if we don't investigate what is canonical, then we're not allowed to get to our stuff for a start. So the power, and also the power to theorize is the power to name. The language structures the way you think. If you, if you, if you can't name something, it's far more difficult to think it. Moving on. And again, we have the revolutionary thought, the social contractarianism and so on and so on and so forth, the enlightenment, all these ideas, these revolutionary movements of the late 19th century, late, I'm sorry, 18th century. And so we start to get the emergence of social theories in the 19th century, particularly. We had, you know, Gobineau, we had Darwin, we had, you know, Freud, we had all sorts of people. Yeah, we had Marx. And, the, and this is not coincidental. Yeah? We are starting to look at the political justifications of certain social um, phenomena and certain social movements and certain social changes. So, and, and Guillaume herself says that to talk, to talk of the political when we're talking about theory, particularly social theory, it's completely tautological because it is by definition political. And theory and whatever the place occupied by the producers and whatever the theory ultimately is, whether you know, she doesn't think you actually theorize something before you go and act. She, she considers that particularly if you're coming, if you're coming from the place of the minority, um, the political minority, you're acting, you're responding before you start theorizing what you're doing. She said the action comes first, the theory sort of comes afterwards. It's very rare that people start theorizing things and then go and act upon it. But you know, whatever, however that happens, whatever the place occupied by the producers of the theory, what it ultimately is or will be, first of all, consciousness of the place you are in society. So when you start theorizing as a member of a minority, you start theorizing from that consciousness of the place you occupy in society. Next. Oh, I'm going to have to shut up soon. Um, I'm almost finished. So thinking about these things, it's all ready to change them and to change the terms in which they were discussed. And after we do that, she was speaking of Simone de Beauvoir, she was speaking of Emesisien, she mentioned Valérie Solanas, I mean, she mentions a few people, but she's talking about, um, we can't think about slavery um, uh, in the same way since Emesisien wrote Discourse on Colonialism. We can't think about colonialism the same since 19, it was 1950. Very important essay. We can't think about sex and relationships between men and women and the male domination in the same way since 1949 when the Deuxième Sex, Second Sex was published. We have, we have the theorization of the, from the consciousness of a situa situation. That means we cannot consider issues in the same way again because we have that radical critique and subversion of the dominant theories. And then we have with that subversion, the creation of new theoretical tools. For example, seeing the creation of women as the product of a social relation and not a natural group that sits outside this relation. Now you'd think, wouldn't you, that the people who are talking about classes of social relation would be able to transfer that to sex. Ah, ah, ah. We know that hasn't happened. And Object, it's, it's a tricky word to translate because um, when we talk about objects and subjects in, in research, we sort of talk about it a little bit differently in English. Um, but being an object of study in French means it's something you study. You know, it, it doesn't have the same connotations of objectification in English. But becoming an object of theory is the necessary consequence of women 
emerging as subjects in history. Next slide. Very near the end. Very near the end. I, and I, this is this is a point. I think it's the last slide. Is it the last slide, Joe? No, I think so. Um, it is the last slide. I wanted to. She wrote a wonderful essay um, called "Sexism: A Right-Wing Constant of Any Discourse," and it is in the translated anthology. And she, she uses the term "pensée à droite et pensée à gauche." which has been translated as thinking right and thinking left, and it's difficult to translate well. It's thinking towards the right and thinking towards the left. Um, that would be the, the literal way of, of, of um, translating it, or thinking to the right and thinking to the left. Now, I'm bringing that up because I think we're having, among feminists, and it's something I'm coming up against a lot, because of the desperation that women are experiencing in combating gender identity ideology, there are some very strange political alliances happening, and I, I'm very troubled by them. However, at the same time, so when I, talk, when I, when I mention left, I'm using Colette Guillaume's definition. I'm not talking about the Labour Party or the Greens or some other political formation. I'm using Guillaume's definition of the left. To think left is to attempt to focus one's mind to counter, to move against the weight of facts and constraints, to imagine something different. Whereas if you're thinking right, you're thinking with the order of things. You're thinking within the order of things. You're thinking very cynically in conformity with the order of things. And if we have a doctrinal homogeneity, as she puts it, of the, of the male stream right, we don't find that homogeneity in the male stream left, which is where we get tripped up. Because most of us have identified, voted for left-wing parties all our lives, and we've got this male stream. But we know very well that the male stream left has sold us down the river in many ways, over many years, over many decades. So it's not the maelstrom left is necessarily our ally, it's just you know, maybe less bad than the maelstrom right, which has that doctrinal coherency. And um, it's um, bad for us on pretty much any level we care to name. So the left is a bit more complicated, but thinking right and thinking left is I think a useful concept for us to keep in our heads when we're, when we're trying to battle with these and, you know, when we're looking at who we're making political alliances with, because thinking right and thinking left for me goes beyond a single societal issue. It goes to the whole conceptual framework we're dealing with in terms of male domination and how that works and who are going to be our best strategic allies at a certain period in time. And if we do make a deal with those strategic allies, what devil are we selling our soul to at the same time? Yeah, I'm not talking about mainstream political parties on either side of the, on anywhere on the spectrum. I'm just raising that as an issue that I think, I think it's something we're, we're struggling with at the moment and feminists are struggling with at the moment. And, um, and, and she, she has said that in concrete reality, these critical interventions, this really thinking left is quite rare. So that large areas of conformity remain unchallenged. And so, it's very difficult for us as feminists to find a place, to find a position, to find a dialogue that can be meaningful for us and to effect some sort of change that is meaningful for us. Um, that's not a very optimistic note to end on, but I think when we're talking about left and right, we need to keep in mind Guillaume's definition. Thank you. Um. That's that's brilliant. That's so interesting, Bronwyn. And there's um, uh, in the chat there are loads of interesting questions. So um, I'm just going to read something out that I I thought was really important, uh, it, it, and it, it's it's linked up to exactly what you you've been saying. And then might give you a little bit of time to look at the chat um, for some of the questions. Um, so um, these are a couple of quotes from Guillaume. She says, insofar as they are possessions, that's us women, all remarks about them are only acceptable from the mouth of a proprietor, the owner. And then mm -hmm. she also says, which is very good, it is as subjects that we do not exist. Materially, we exist only too much. We are properties. It's because we are taken in hand as a whole class that we are dispossessed of ourselves. 
So it's really nice that she's got this very strong material perspective, but she's also talking about social construction in a really dynamic, interesting and clear way. Um, and if you, uh, there's lots, there's English translation of this. So if you don't read French, um, you can, and there's also quite a bit on YouTube in French that you can, you can get at, but the translations are great. And then the last oh, one. Yeah, the, I, just, I just saw the caption said male domination, M-A-I-L. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Domination by letters. But then there's the one more one more quote, and then you can answer some of these things. Um, uh, now, this is interesting. She says, uh, individual mental rejuvenation and yoga may help for a time, but it is important that we regain, and not just with our minds, the possession of our materiality. To regain ownership of ourselves implies that our entire class regain the ownership of itself socially and materially and I think she's incredibly useful for us to read uh, with what we're facing at the moment because we've got this minefield of us being dispossessed of of consciousness that we are a material slate enslaved class and the proprietors taking over talking about us and talking as if they were us and talking for us. But she's got, she seems to have all the elements of understanding that we need at the moment. And so, I, I mean, I definitely found it sort of sparked a lot of insight into our struggle right now. Anyway, back to you, Bronwyn. Have you got any answers to yeah, no, some of the stuff people have said? Yeah. I'm just kind of reading this at the same time. But I saw... Um, Oh, two things that I'm just going to try and keep hold of. Um, personal originality and individualism, just hold that thought. And um, fragmentation, because there was a, a, somebody in the chat talking about women being fragmented. And Guillaume actually does write about that. She writes about women suffering this fragmentation so that we actually cannot um, grab hold of ourselves <laughs> and our wholeness, uh, our materiality, as, 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 as you say, Joe. We cannot see ourselves outside that context of dispossession because we have been fragmented by it. The other thing also, and it's, this is in question of difference again, she talks about um, wanting to sort of chase after this personal originality and everyone wants to be original and everyone wants to be different. And that's a real sort of individualist trap too, because it's that sort of psychological solution like doing yoga and so on that you were sort of, um, that you were uh, alluding to, Joe. that sort of this is individualistic solutions. She doesn't use the term individualism so much, but that's sort of what she's talking about. She does use um, the term, she does talk about psychologizing a lot. She talks about it in um, Women and Theories of Society, the, the theoretical effects of the anger of the oppressed. She also talks about it in a few other of her essays, but this sort of psychological individualizing analysis of racism or sexism and so on. And then we get this analysis of the tendency of the oppressed to be the oppressed, yes? And then the tendency, those oppressed who have a tendency to be oppressed, then seek these individualistic psychological solutions because that's what they get oriented towards rather than developing that class consciousness and actually seeing that their situation is relational and it's not their individual problem. And of course, that's, you know, the divide and conquer mentality that we've dealt with, you know, and particularly that we deal with as women for so long. And there was something that I had on the tip of my brain that was related to that, but it'll come back. And maybe I'll, I'll say another a sort of bit of feedback, and it's possibly a question as well, is that um, she, as you say, start, well, uh, she, she started off writing about race and she came up, as I understand, she was saying that the idea of race was constructed in uh, to create the idea of race race and then people became racialized so rather than saying uh somebody is let's say a black person you a lot of francophones and even right now loads of young francophone women i talk to they use the term a racialized woman or a, they don't 
and how does that work and then also how does that I want oh, to know more about what does sexage mean <laughs> well in English really because you said it's the enslavement of women but it's the, yeah go on um, explain that maybe I'm sorry you know it's yeah. just I, it made me laugh because it's been such a big debate in France and it it yeah. sort of goes down the sort of another avenue that I've sort of worked on for years and years and years which is sort of how you deal with racism in a sort of very droit la différence, cultural relativist sort of way. And there are two terms that get used. There's racisé et racialisé. And Guillaume oh. definitely would have preferred the, the second. Yeah. And is that because racialized? Becomes, yeah. Racisé becomes a sort of, um, it becomes an identity. So if you say, uh, nous sommes des racisés, you sort of got this sort of identity banner that you're putting up. Whereas if you say you um, talk about people qui sont racialisés, then you're talking about a relationship. You're talking about a social relation. You're talking about a process that creates race. And Guillaume notes herself, she talks about the etymology and the chronological development of the use of the term race because it was originally what family you came from. Yeah. So your race was your good family. You were of good birth and that was your race. Yeah. So... The term developed um, through colonialism. So we've got this sort of justifying language and justifying ideology that developed to talk about, to racialize people. And, and in fact, the racism, the racism of the colonizers developed the notion of race, created the race, created the races. You know? So that the race wasn't thought of in that way. Um, previously, even though, you know, back in Europe, you did also always have ethnic minorities, but they weren't considered races in the same way. And, it, and so you this term... minorities that the dominant classes made fun of and marginalised and so on. You can talk about coming from the Midi in France, you can talk about being Welsh in the UK and so on and so forth, yeah. But those sorts of things, um, they've been around for a long time, but it's a slightly so different So her, her idea of sexage, and uh, when you were just speaking now, you said that the translation into English was the enslavement of women, um, which I don't know if you think is, it, but is the, do you think there's a snappier term for it? Because I think that if you can capture that sex, it's a process, it's a relationship, um, that is really, really quick way of saying, how we're oppressed sort of signaling we're talking about our oppression um it, is there a, a, a really good translation of sexage it, it's really actually quite difficult to um translate niftily into english because servage esclavage sexage have this assonance and this continuum and she talks about them in in that continuum when she does her uh, her, her two-part essay on the appropriation of women and discourse of nature that was published in Question Féministe in um, 1978, I think it was. Um, and um, when those essays were done, she talked about servage, esclavage, and the sorts of processes, and she talked about sexage working on a similar level of the appropriation of the whole body of the products of the body, blah, 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 blah. So that was sort of her train of thought. So it would be very difficult to find a similar assonance, slavery, femery, womery. I mean, it just doesn't really make sense in English mm. to find that nice neat term that has those nice neat parallels. So um, I haven't come up with a better term than the enslavement of women, but I'm very happy to hear suggestions. Mm. Um, or the appropriation I, I, of women because that's what she talks about she talks about the appropriation of women by men yeah men's appropriation of women let's stop talking about it as if there's no no perp yes yeah 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 and right so another question it might people might have is um was she a radical feminist sorry what was that was she a radical feminist um, it's sort of like asking, mm, it's like asking Olympe de Gouges if she was a radical, no, no, it's not quite like that, but it's sort of, um, it, it's such a different context. Yeah, I mean, 
you did start, I mean, in France, you use the term feminist revolutionnaire and feminist materialist. Feminist radical came a little bit later with, with particularly Franco-US connections through people like Christine Delvey and so on. But, um, you know, and there was a very, very, very famous moment where Kate Millett came to France and there's a video of them sitting around with Christine Delvey and Monique Vidic before they, before they sort of, you know, packed up the train sets and went different ways when they were still talking to each other. So, you know, it's sort of, um, it, it's, and it's quite funny because, you know, we sort of had this meeting of these revolutionary materialist feminists with these radical, with this US radical feminist. And, and, and that's sort of where that conversation of feminisme radical began to take place and sort of generated, sort of developed throughout the 1980s. But it's really, it's not homegrown, yeah? It's, it's sort of like talking about material, materialist feminism in the UK doesn't mean the same thing as materialist feminism in France. Yeah, and there's been yeah. lots of confusion also about materialist feminism and what it actually means. It means something different again in the US. If you're talking about people like Rosemary Watsoface and so on writing in um, the 1990s in the US, um, bringing in the material concept of materialist feminism as an answer to postmodernism, it's a different thing again, yeah? I've actually, um, there's an Encyclopedia of Gender and Sexuality Studies in which, no, no, yeah, there was a companion to an Encyclopedia of Gender and Sexuality Studies in which I have a, an entry on materialist feminism and the different types of materialist feminism, which doesn't really answer your question, but, you know, I don't think Colette Guillaume would have ever called herself a radical feminist. She would have called herself a lesbian radical and she would have called herself a feminist materialiste, but um, I never asked her what she called herself, to be perfectly frank, but um, she, um, she, she, it's, it's just sort of, it feels not anachronistic, it feels, what's, what's the geographical equivalent to anachronistic? Geographical, it just doesn't yes. feel yeah, right. yeah. And so, uh, related to that a little bit, um, could can you summarize or, or sort of explain to us in what way it's especially French perspective? Um, you know, I got a, I got some feeling when I was reading it that she came from a more of a materialist, like this sort of Marxist perspective, but also all those philosophical debates that happened in France in the after the revolution and the whole idea of social construction. But how would you say that she's different from Anglo, Anglophone feminists? Oh, well, we've got another hour. Um, I mean, you know, somebody said, yeah, she sounds pretty radical to me. Yes, in terms of what radical means, if we're talking about radical feminism, meaning about getting to the root of the problem, which is what radical means, um, and she talks about radical critique that women are making um, of, you know, the, the, the canons of theory. Well, yes, of course she was radical feminist, but the thing is radical feminism also has a specific contextual meaning, and it's a very Anglo contextual meaning if you even if you have women in other countries who may now identify as radical feminists the idea of radical feminism came out of a particular environment at a particular time yeah so it's it's just talking about the differences um yeah i think there was certainly the french revolution and how that colored politics in france and how the french revolution then got mythologized in france and the sorts of different levels of French state hypocrisy that women have written about over, over the decades um, have been have marked, I think. You've also got um, the fact, well, you, there's a small thing called the Second World War and the occupation and the Shoah, which I think had an effect in France that had in, in no Anglophone country. In continental Europe, it was not experienced in, 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 in the same way as in continental Europe. So you have quite specific things. You have the Affaire Dreyfus, you have all sorts of things going on in France that are quite specific to France and did influence the way people thought. When when, when, when Césaire wrote discourse on, the, on colonialism, he talked about, it was just after the Second World War, right? And he said, you know, you people who've taken a stand against Nazis and the atrocities that, that have been committed against Jewish people, you are committing those same atrocities now against us. So, you know, it's sort of talking about those sorts of hypocrisies. So those things have sort of marked the French psyche in quite specific ways. Um, so the, the mythologization of the revolution have marked the French psyche in, in quite specific ways. And the thing about inventing nature as a way of keeping, keeping women away from the band of brothers has been a very big thing in France. 
and it has been a big thing in France in the way that historically is not possible in the UK because you don't have the same history. Yeah? So um, even if there are ideas that are convergent, contextually, it's very different. And I do think the influence of Marxian thought was much stronger in France. Um, it's been much stronger in Latin countries more generally than in, Ang in the Anglo world. Um, and um, which has been, you know, good thing and a bad thing, but, you know, it's been largely, I think, a good thing. Uh, and, and as Delphi said, you know, what, what she took from Marx, even though she was very critical of Marx, as, as was Guillaume and a whole lot of other people, is this idea of historical, historical materialism, that these things are a historical relationship, they have developed historically, and because they are a relationship, they can change. Because they have a relationship that is developed historically, they're not in nature, they're, 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 not, they're not fixed, they're not set in concrete for an era, they are dynamic and they can change. And that a conceptual tool has been incredibly useful. And that's where materialist feminists derive their name from the use of historical materialism to analyze social relations. Yeah, and so I, I think I'll, I'll just add one more thing and maybe give you time to see if there are any other, other things you wanted to say. But I think I've noticed is that she's not very often referred, referenced by Anglophone feminist writers or and because we she's said to have laid a basis we we sort of radical feminists quite often come out of the ideas some of the ideas whether they came directly from her or from that time of a lot of people coming up with it but not many people reference her and we we know that Sheila Jeffries does in Beauty and Misogyny and points out so you know talks about the importance of her work, but I just looked at Mary Daly, Gynecology and Pure Lust. She doesn't I mention her at all. Everything I write. Yes, you I do. <laughs> yeah, but I think she hasn't been. She's not well known enough. In you know, we're not. Hopefully, now more women will read because uh, it's a shame well, because she's she's great. Interestingly, in France, Guillaume was known. I think she got best known for her work on race. And she was quite respected in the sociology field. She co-founded journals. I mean, she was, you know, and she was working at this prestigious research institute. So, you know, even though, even though there was a history of, you know, the more radical women getting marginalized within the CNRS, which was with Guillaume Mann's experience and that of some others, um, the um she did have a certain, what's the word I want? a certain standing within the research institution because of her work on race. And she's actually better known in France more generally for that work than she is for her work on sex and sexism and, and on male domination. You know, of course she's yeah. known by feminists in France for that work, yeah. but not more broadly. Yes, surprise, surprise. So I was watching YouTube stuff and there were quite a lot of men talking about that her main contribution was the idea of on race and nothing they just didn't mention the stuff on sex because <laughs> obviously well often they just overlook that don't they um I think when, I, I'm talking yeah. sorts, when i'm talking in these sorts of four i actually do like to mention her work on race because it was really very important yeah so Absolutely it's you know yeah we want to talk about her as you know the feminist work but her first work was on race and, yeah. and yeah. that's really something that she was very well known for and there's a lot of pioneering work in. So, you know, it's, it's, I think it's important to acknowledge also, and particularly when white women write about this stuff, it's sort of refreshing. So it's, it was sort of, um, it's, I think that's something that needs acknowledging also within our feminist circles. Yeah. Because we don't I talk think about I, race. Anymore. I really got from reading her is, as with often when I read feminists or radical feminists, or in this case, materialist feminists or um, work, is I, it makes me feel really, really, good and it makes me feel stronger and her confidence and her clarity of saying that we are a sex class and that we are together we are joined together and that we will not be we can't have individual liberation we need to liberate all of us as a material sex class and I just love that she wasn't messing around she just went straight for it for the the relationship of oppression we need to liberate ourselves and I felt that's one reason why it's quite nice to read somebody who was writing at a time maybe of more clarity and more conscious, more confidence. So that's, I would recommend. Uh, well, the thing is, we, 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 we can 
clearly there was a sort of heyday of the second wave feminist movement, right? But I think we can also possibly mythologize these women of sort of, you know, oh, yes, they're writing about this stuff with, uh, with, with such clarity back then. You know, well, you know, the women writing about that stuff with clarity now. But we're still pretty marginal, and they were pretty marginal back then too. It's like, you know, we're not talking mainstream here. And I just wanted to, to, answer, to address a comment that um, Sheila made about translation and somebody talking about an international translation. And Sheila mentioned Di Leonard, Di Leonard um, who sadly also died some years ago and who translated quite a few of of um, Nicole Mathieu's and, and, and Delphi's and, and Guillaume's articles. Um, and I remember Di Leonard said to me once, I said, you know, Nicole's not well, she's going to die soon. We have to translate her work. And okay, Di, <laughs> it's sort of like, and that never happened because translating is a big job. It's, you know, it's, it's a big job. It's thankless. It doesn't earn your research points. You know, it's sort of, it's actually quite, a fun, it's 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 huge, yeah. So if you wanted to translate, I mean, there are translations of Guillaume's work. She didn't write, you know, apart from *Idéologie Raciste*, she didn't write book-length works. There was more articles, and a lot of her work is now available in translation. But Nicole Claude Mathieu has written like these big tomes. Uh, Paula Tabet is another one. These these are women who've written, a, you know, quite a lot of substantial body of work that is not translated. But um, you know, it's it's just you know, you really need to set aside a year of your life to do it. And, mm. and that's work out. And nobody's going to bankroll that year for you. No, you're not talking no. about translating yeah. somebody, you're not talking about translating best selling authors. Yeah. Well, we've come to the end of our uh, hour of Radical Feminist Perspectives. Thank you so much. I, I, I think everyone's really, really delighted that you've um, shared your knowledge about this. And uh, quite a few people in the chat have said, well, there's a lot more to, to hear. And would you, would you continue with? either part two or, or other of Francophone feminists in the future. So we'll invite you back on as soon as possible. You possibly have to have a session on French materialist feminism because of the differences and it's sort of, you know, why are they different? I think that's sort of, that that's an interesting question. Yeah, brilliant. Okay, well, there's a breakout room for people who want to go. Um, and next week we have the, oh, I've put it in the chat. So, but anyway, see you next week. Okay. And thank you very much, Bronwyn. Okay. Bye everybody.